I apologize. I promise my leaves were all raked and nice on my front yard on Thursday. I have no idea what happened with them, but some of you, I'm guessing, have some of my leaves in your front yard. That was pretty, pretty crazy. I um, can tell you, you might not have known this, but it's possible for you to be banished from the happiest place on earth, at least the Disneyland portion of it. And we found this out when I was a youth pastor in Southern California that uh, our favorite babysitter, she had um, had some friends of hers that told her that if she went to a particular ride in Disneyland, um, the Snow White ride, that if she went there, that they have this scene where there's an apple that's at the end and, and they really want you to, to take it. In fact, it's like breakable, so, not breakable, but you can get out and you can go take that. And, and actually her friends had told her, uh, she told me this later in tears, and it was terrible, that her friends had told her that it wasn't that hard to do and they really kind of expect you to do this. So she had just bought her premium season pass to Disneyland. And she's there with her friends, her other friends checking out. Um, she put her backpack in the right place. Don't any of you get any ideas now, all right? But she put her backpack in the right place and that she snuck out. She got out. She got to the apple. Can you picture the moment? And then the lights turn up. And apparently there's police officers at Disneyland that have the authority to confiscate your pass. And they can usher you out of Disneyland, which they did to my little sweet friend. And after the fact, I can just picture like her little face on a sign. Like if she comes here, she's banished, you know? So for a year, she was banished from Disneyland. Now, now we, I'm sure for a bunch of us in this room, we have a story of peer pressure that worked on us that we regret, right? Like there's a component of it. If she could go back in time, she would have done it a little differently. But today I want to talk with you as we study the book of Nehemiah together, as we pick up where we left off, that there's a type of pressure that can come from peers that's actually quite positive. And what we see from Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is going to articulate this element of what God's doing in such a way that he's going to say, I'm in. We're going to see what God's going to do, and, and I want you to join us. And in fact, if you don't join us, you're just going to miss out. And there's this sense of Nehemiah understanding what God was doing and the sense of God's provision that is so profound that he ultimately is going to say, I'm going, and, and I'd love to have you join me. And there's a component of this that he has a tremendous impact on the lives of others that are around him because of the fact that he believed what was happening was a movement of God. And there's a component of this that in his invitation for others to join us, that it had kind of two components to it. One of them was, I want you to join in what God is doing that he's invited me to be a part of. And then the second component of this is, we're going. We'd love to have you be a part of this. But it's also kind of bookended by the fact that there will be the kind of a somberness to it, that there will be some people who say, not really interested in that. Now, when it comes to the local church, what we know, the Billy Graham Association did a survey to find out why people come to church for the first time. And it might surprise you. Some of you might think it'd be a mailer or a, a sign on the side of the road. Those are actually very, like barely even measurable for people to come. If you think it's how they like the pastor, statistically they said it's about 8%. Um, of the, so some of you might think that's a little high or a little low, right? In terms of that, do we like the pastor? But the reality of the first time that people come to church is over 85% of those individuals say 
that it's because someone that they knew chose to invite them to join them. And there's a component of this that I'm guessing for you in this room that some of you might have done that for you. That might be a part of your story, that they met you and they invited you to come and to be a part of what they're participating. And what we see with Nehemiah today as we pick up in chapter two is we see that Nehemiah is not necessarily saying, hey, this is a really good idea. In fact, there's a sentence that we're going to see in the text where he says, y'all are going to rebuild. I don't think he says y'all. That's like my Texan in there. But he's like, y'all are going to rebuild this wall. And, and there's a sense of that where he's not coming in from a distance and saying, hey, get to work. But what he's saying, and he says right after that, the sense of we're going, this is happening, and we would love for you to be a part of this. And so today in this context, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to catch up with us in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to talk about what it means for us to, to partner with God and what God's doing, ultimately fulfilling his promise to his people of restoration and that God's ultimately going to use Nehemiah to be a catalyst for change, the spark that changes the entire history of the world based upon his simple obedience to the Lord. And one of his primary methods that he's going to use is a method that you and I, I believe, have the capacity to use ourselves. And that is, I'm going, and I would love for you to join us. The central point this morning, if you stick with me, is that Nehemiah knew that he was a part of a movement of God. And he eagerly invited others to join in it. He knew he was a part of something that God was going, that was, God was at work in. When I was in, um, in high school, I grew up in the Dayton area in southern Ohio or, or closer, closer to Dayton in a suburb of Dayton. And I had been invited to attend a crew at the Ohio State University. I'm not sure if we have to say the, uh, but at Ohio State University. And I started to go, and one of the things that I started to notice, there were hundreds of students that were there. Worship was amazing. And they started to use this word that was a trickle-down word from the founder of Campus Crusade, now crew, and it was the word movement. And he said, this is a movement of God. And when you watch, what you started to notice was that people weren't there because they were forced to be there, because they, they were there because they had encountered the living God. They wanted to be there together. The, the testimony, some of them by some of the athletes that I'd love to, to watch on TV, some of the football players, some of those, like they're sharing testimonies of how God had impacted their, their lives personally. And there was a sense of this fact that this is a movement of God. So it was worth me driving two hours on Thursday nights as a high school student to go and to be a part of that. And I love the way Bill Bright put it when he describes it as a movement, because there's this sense, like we see in the book of Acts, we're going to go through the book of Acts, I hope, next year together. And, and one of the things that we see is this statement that's so beautiful in the book of Acts, where it says, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And there's this sense from the beginning, like, buckle up, because God's doing something and there's a component of this that we see with Nehemiah, that he understood that this was a movement of God, that he's going to give God glory in this process. And as we catch up in Nehemiah chapter 2, what we're going to see is his description of what happened. Last week, we talked about how Nehemiah got his battle orders. He was a catalyst for change. We know that he prayed up for this moment, months that he spent prayerfully preparing for this moment. 
And now what we get to see is his strategic plan to come into fulfilling what God's will was going to be with the Israelites. What's going to happen? And what shocks me is that there are tons of other people who are in Israel at the time that could have been a part of the rebuilding process, but that hadn't been the catalyst for change yet. So Nehemiah comes in from his comfortable palace, his job where he's the cupbearer to the king, where he's got a pretty good situation. He chooses to separate himself from that. And this is what we see in the text. It says this in verse 9. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. This would have been a shock to them. Because these officers are these individuals who received this letter. Uh, most believe that they were some of the ones that convinced King Artaxerxes, who was Nehemiah's boss, that they shouldn't rebuild the walls. That they were a part of the opposition. And now Nehemiah comes not only with the blessing and leave from the king, but he also comes with the stuff to rebuild the walls. It's a beautiful image, and so they're probably shocked. And then later in verse 11, verse 10 talks about the opposition. We'll talk about that in a bit later. But in verse 11, it says this, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. So now Nehemiah does something. We know that he first prayed, right? That he spent tons of time praying for God's will to be done. And then he does something now where his brother had told him that the walls were down in Israel. And he wept over it earlier in the text. But now he's going to look at it for himself. Verse 12 says this, Then I rose in the night, and I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. This is a description of that prompting that happens in our life. God had asked him to do this thing. He was convinced of it. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. Verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Those words don't mean a ton to us unless you've had the privilege of going to Israel or you know the geography. But what they describe is that the only walls that were left were the rear walls that were on the southern side of, of Jerusalem or of Israel. I'm sorry, Jerusalem there. And these would have represented the fact that most of their enemies were to the north. They had been broken down. They had been burned. That they were completely exposed. And as Nehemiah articulates this, he's articulating the sad story of the reality that the walls or down, goes on to say in verse 15, it says, Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. It's important for us to accept this morning that change begins with honesty. And I think for, for many of us, we have to accept that whether it's the mirror, or the doctor's visit, the scale, whether it's a, the whole home inspector, that there's a component of our lives that we, in order to get better, it, allow, it forces us to be someone who takes the time to be honest with what we're really going through. That, that there's a sense here that Nehemiah chooses to not 
ignore the inconvenient truth. I love this artistic rendition. It's from an old Bible. And I just love the description. One, when Nehemiah talks about his animal, there's a part of this that the gates were designed for you to be able to take more than just an animal through. But they had fallen down. They were in ruins. They were crushed. And I love the, the, the rendition of the two leaders in the front being cast down, that they're there's a sense of this being extremely emotional, I'm sure, for Nehemiah. The inspection would have given him an accurate picture of the status of the walls and of the people. But I like the way that Pamela Lee Richards puts it. She says, change does not happen until you change the way you look at it. So for Nehemiah, he didn't just see the rubble, but if you follow in the text, he describes what's about to happen. He sees in his mind's eye, the walls being rebuilt. He sees the potential for what's going to happen. And it's going to happen, we know, in record time because God's going to be deeply involved in the process. It's been said, this is a bad dad joke, but it's been said that the only people who like change are bankers and babies. Have you ever heard that before? Um, the first service laughed a little more at that, but I um, was a part of a church in um, Ohio and um, near my church growing up or my family growing up that was growing like crazy. God was doing a really special thing in that church. And one of the things that I got the privilege of being a part of was to watch them go from their old building that was um, that had low ceilings. It was an old factory space. Um, it smelled bad. There were pillars everywhere. Um, there weren't enough seats. They had to do multiple services. I think it was like eight church services that they had to do to fit everybody in the church. So it was really special. But I was there the day that they went into their new multi-million dollar worship center. And I remember that day specifically because I heard multiple people not talking about the blessing of the new place, but you know what they were talking about because you know how this works, right? Is that many of them were talking about, but, but I wish I could go back. And I, I remember thinking, like, they were like, but I miss the old place, right? I, I miss the acoustics in the old place. I miss, and I wanted to say, do you miss having a pole right in front of you where you couldn't see what was going on? But there's a part of us, human nature, we talk about the glory days, but there's a part of us that wants to hang on and to not be a part of change. In fact, what we're going to see from Nehemiah is that there were people who were not just indirectly opposed to change, but there were some people who were directly opposed, like over my dead body. It's not going to happen. And there's a component of this in the local church. There's a component of this in our families and our lives. There's a component of this that the, the image for me is of like the ostrich hand, head in the sand, right? Like that there's that, that part that's saying like, I don't want to see the reality of what's happening. And I think what Nehemiah chooses to do is he begins with this, this honest evaluation of what's going on. And there's a component of this too that, that theologically is, is significant. I'll come back to that in a second. That theologically is significant. And that is that, that Nehemiah chooses to allow himself to be, um, to, the, for God to be at work in his life, but he also does work himself. Someone has said it beautifully this way. When it describes what later Nehemiah is going to say in the text, he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants, we will arise and build. 
that there's a divine combination of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. There's a sense of, I'm, I'm in, I'm going to do this. And there's also a sense of God's in and God's going to do this. It's a, um, Ali shared with me an old illustration that we, we heard growing up. And that was of the man who is in a house that's flooding. And in the house, he was a religious man. He prayed to God and he said, God, I, um, I, I want to pray that you would protect me, that you would deliver me from this flood. And so a few minutes later, one of the neighbors comes by and he's on a canoe and he says, hey, jump in. And the guy says back, no, I'm good. God said he's going to save me from the flood, right? And then there's a, a police officer that comes by in a boat. Hey, come on in. I'm here to save you. Oh, no, I'm good. God said he's going to save me. The helicopter comes. I'm good. God's going to save me. So the guy drowns, right? And he's in heaven. He's talking to God. And, and God says back to him, he said, he said, God, I thought you were going to save me. He said, dude, you missed the boat, the canoe. And the, it, it's silly, right? But there's, there's a component of this in our lives that I think for, for us, we're waiting for something. And what Nehemiah chooses to do is he chooses to act, but it doesn't discredit the work of God in his life. In fact, it is only because of the authoritative work of God in his life that he, he finds himself in a position where he can trust that this is of God, that this is God's work, that he's getting to partner with God and what he's doing to bring himself glory and honor. I think we see this clearly in Nehemiah's approach to how he describes what's happening. And there's this great invitation, this, this invitation to join in. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That word derision would have been a part of the judgment of God and the exile that had led to the dispersion of God's people. He's saying, we get to no longer be a part of that. We get to be a part of the restoration of God's people, the worship in God's temple, and that God's going to do this. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. Can you picture, this was like his ultimate hope story, right? He's saying, I went to the king and I asked for 12 years off right? And he blessed me. I, I didn't just ask him for leave, but that he actually sent me with letters that give me the permission to rebuild the walls. He was the guy who signed the document that said the walls shouldn't have been built. But now God changed his heart in such a way that he not only sent me, he not only gave me leave, but he sent me with the wood to rebuild the walls and the doors. And the, the whole problem, you get that sense of his excitement. And there's a, a component of this I want you to catch this, that his courage is ultimately, his ability to say God is in this is ultimately going to lead him to be able to see other people be filled with the courage of God. He recognizes that this wasn't his cleverness, this wasn't his way of making an argument to Artaxerxes, but instead, the way he says that the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of that the king had spoken to me. He tells his story of hope. If you have time studying this, and if you have your notes, there are a number of references to the work of the hand of God in this process. Nehemiah talks about Ezra. Remember, Ezra is a record of a very similar time period that overlaps, that we see the rebuilding of the walls through the perspective of Ezra. And what we see time and again, Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, um, verse 9, 28, 8, 18, 22. There, the Nehemiah here, 2, 8. We see this description of Nehemiah saying, God 
was in this. God was active in this. This is his movement. And then there's a component of this that, that Nehemiah is ultimately saying, so, so let's build together. I like, I like the way that he casts this vision. It's really quite, quite profound. Nehemiah's words are, come, let us build. And do you see it in the text? He's, it's profound. They catch the vision, right? That at the end of these verses, he says, come, they say, come, let us build. So his courage encourages other, the, 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 the group of people are going to be ignited to be a part of the change that God wants to do. And, and there's a component of this, that this great power that comes from the invitation to join is, is really quite clear in the way that Nehemiah approaches this, that he, he believes that this is God's work and he includes others in the process and then they just jump on board and they're ready to go. But it doesn't mean that there's not opposition to the work that God wants to do there. It says in verse 10. Now we see, I pulled this from the earlier text, and then we'll look at this in 19. The same characters are brought up. Three, three individuals who are going to represent groups of people that are going to stand in the way of the rebuilding process. In verse 10, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. In verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, they despised us, and they said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You know, those who stand in opposition have a lot of tools in their toolbox. In this case, he uses a form of a false accusation. Aren't you rebelling against the king? We know that that's a lie. Nehemiah knows that that's a lie. He was in the courtroom with the king. He knows that he had permission, but their accusation is one that's false, it's palatable, and it's a direct attack. There's others that are going to say later on, we're going to see this description where, where they say, they mock them, and they say, you know, you're going to rebuild this wall from the, the rocks that have been burned. I think that's a funny one, because ultimately they are going to use the rocks that had been burned, because their structural integrity was still sound. And they're going to take these rocks that show the evidence of the destruction, and it's going to be the very tools that they're going to use to establish the rebuilding of the walls. Not only do we see that, but we see later that they're going to, one of these guys is going to be a part of a direct attempt on Nehemiah's life. That they're so opposed to God working in this restoration way that they're going to attempt in their own strength to get in the way of what God is doing. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop him. In fact, there's a component of this that, that what we know about Nehemiah is that he was a man who understood that this was going to be a process that takes time. When I was in Africa, they taught me a wonderful proverb. They say, um, how do you eat an elephant? You guys heard this before? Uh, one, one bite at a time. I don't recommend that, by the way, um, the one bite at a time part. But the image is a powerful one, right? Like that there's this process that you go through. It's okay that it takes time. And what Nehemiah is doing here is that he's going to ultimately say to them that this is going to be a process. And some are going to choose to stay in their painful situation. The way that it's described in the text is it says that they're going to suffer derision. That word is a direct reference to the shame brought upon Jerusalem by God's former judgment. And it's recorded in Jeremiah 24 verse 9 that 
He's saying you can stay in your situation. You can wallow in it. Or you can join us. You can be a part of what God wants to do. You can experience this. And there were some that were going to directly oppose, whether it's through their mockery. This was one of the ways they mocked them is they said, oh, those walls are going to be so wimpy that if fox that crawls on them, they could just fall right over. In the text, there were three different individuals that are referred to that are standing in opposition of Nehemiah. One of them was Sanballat uh, the Horonite. And he at that time was the governor of Samaria. Under Persian rule, he was an authoritative person. He was a person who had great resources. And what we know is that Nehemiah posed a threat to his own ambition. If any of you have ever watched the, the, the movie Toy Story, I love that, that movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a little complicated to illustrate it. But if you have, there's a component of the story that is, is really special because it gives us this insight if, if uh, toys had a mind and they could tell you what they feel about uh, when a new toy comes into the equation and what it does to their own experience, like that it freaks them out, basically. I did a terrible job of summarizing this movie. Go watch it, come back, and you'll understand what I mean. The, the description there has always stood out to me, even in the local church context and our relationships, that, that for some of us, we get nervous about including other people into our world because they could threaten our world, that they could put at risk our seat in the, in the pew, our, our place. They, they could put at risk what makes us comfortable. And I think there's a component of this that we have to be people who overcome this. These guys are, are threatening. Tobiah the Ammonite, it's fascinating. His, his word and um, his name was literally um, to be someone who, like his, the description of his name is Yahweh is good, that he was a, a Jewish man or at least associated with the Jewish community. And here he's ultimately going to be someone who stands opposed to the rebuilding of the walls, whether it was for selfish gain, whether it was that this just wasn't the time, that he wasn't going to be able to have the position that he wanted. And finally, Geshem, the Arab, probably the most powerful of all three of these individuals, is, is going to be a man who represents those individuals on the outside that that have no interest in Israel being sound or strong to be restored, that they are going to oppose it no matter what it takes. And, and whether it's going to be a mockery or whether it's going to be false accusations or a death threat, that they're going to oppose change. Last week, we talked about this briefly. I love this image. If you were a person who were on an escalator and it stopped halfway up, there'd be that moment maybe when you pause and you say, well, what am I supposed to do? And then you just keep moving forward, right? That there's that sense that, that we've got what it takes to get through. Somebody said after last week when I used this illustration, they said, but Sean, my life feels like I'm trying to go up the down escalator. You know, it's a good image, isn't it? Like that it's, it's extra hard. It feels extra hard for me. But I would say to each one of us, and Nehemiah kind of shows this in the way he chooses to live his life, is that he says, you know what, there's opposition, but we just keep moving forward. I love this quote. He says, the best response to impersonal resistance is personal persistence. Like, we got this, right? We're going to keep moving forward. We can handle this. Last week we said, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. Personal persistence is what we do. And here is the way that Nehemiah puts it. He says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper 
and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The bitter truth is that there are some who will choose not to join in what God is doing. They will ultimately miss out, and it's truly their loss. In the text, Nehemiah is basically saying this. He's saying some people aren't going to get on board. And we're going to see this as the passage unfolds. That there's going to be some people, the cost was too high. They, they didn't want to be a part of it. They, they chose to ignore the hand of God, and they are going to be on the outside looking in. And basically what Nehemiah said in that text is he says they're just going to miss out on their portion of the blessing. I want to challenge you this morning that, that this is not just a message about Hope Church, and it's not just an ancient message about Nehemiah's obedience to God, but it has an application in each of our lives. That there's a component of us, like this is the way I want to live my life, is that I want to live my life in such a way that I'm paying attention to what God's doing. That when I see that, regardless of the cost, that I'm saying, I'm willing to, I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to join in with him. And in that process, I want to be somebody who's winsome enough and willing to invite other people to join in that process. But I don't assume for a second that everybody's going to say yes, right? Like, I don't assume for a second that it's going to be easy or that it's not hard. Did you see what it said? They were getting their hands ready for the work. Like, they're, they're ready to get going, and there, there's a component, I love this, maybe this is just a pastoral thing, but I love in, in Matthew chapter 13, one of the parables that Jesus told, where he actually defined what the parable meant. The disciples were curious. It's the one where he goes out and it says a farmer goes out and sows his seed. He casts the seed and some of it falls on a sidewalk and rocky soil and amongst thorns. And then one, do you remember what happens? There's one that takes root and it says it produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. It's a great image, right? And Jesus goes on to explain it. And he says, this is like every person who hears the message of the kingdom. That, that they either are people who are like seed that falls on the sidewalk. And we'd say today, they're like atheists, agnostics. They say, I, I don't want anything to do with God or God's unknowable. I don't, like nothing happens. But then there's others that it says the deceitfulness of wealth, the weariness of life, choke it out. And it says they have no root uh, but then the last one, it says that that's the person who receives the message with joy and it produces a crop. You know what I love about that? Is that it's not about the cleverness of the sower. This isn't a gardening lesson. It's not about the messenger, but it's about the recipient of the message. And for some of you in this room, when it comes to the fear that keeps you from being generous with the gospel or keeps you from inviting someone in, is the, it's that act, it's the act of obedience to say, would you join me? Or it's that act of saying, here's the gospel. That ought to be the thing that resonates with you. And, and this is deeply personal, right? But it comes for us at a cost for us to be able to say, you know what? Here's the message. Here's the truth. And, and it is fiercely personal. When we were in, at Cedarville, we went to a lot of chapels. And I heard one guy, I'm not recommending this to anyone, but he, um, he was a, a chapel speaker. And he said the way that he shared the gospel is that one day he was driving on a bus and he was on his way to his church. And he saw somebody walking on the side of the road and he had a gospel track. You know, those little booklets with the pictures. Sometimes they're scary. No, you guys don't know? A few of you know, you have one in your pocket. You're going to give it to kids for Halloween, aren't you? <laughs> hey, don't give it to your waiter and not give them a tip, 
all right? That's bad. But uh, give him a hundred bucks and then give him a t track. That's okay. Okay, so he said, I don't, he's, I don't know if this was true. I mean, I'm not questioning his integrity, but he said he threw the tract and hit a guy with it. And then the guy ended up coming to his church a couple days later. It's a goofy story, right? But for some of us, like that distance is the way we want to approach the sharing of the gospel the reality is, statistically, individuals hear the gospel from us when it's personal, when it's family, when it's our story, when we're able to give an answer for the hope that we hold dear. That's, that's the challenge for us, that it's fiercely personal for us. And it's one that ultimately accepts the fact that some people may not receive it. But you know what is so great about that Matthew 13 passage? Some of them that we might not even expect might receive it because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message and about the truth of the gospel and what it can do in a person's life. That's a part of my story. I hope that's a part of your story. So when Nehemiah looks at this, I, I, really, I really think this is fun that when in this text, when he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise, but you will have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. For those who are going to say, yes, there's a promise of a portion and a right and a claim. But for others, really, I think that Nehemiah is saying it's going to be their loss. So as we come to the conclusion of this message, I'll remind you that there's a kind of pressure that's appropriate, that's, that's peer pressure, but it's extremely positive peer pressure. And there's a component of this I want to ask you as we've been going through this this study together, that this is intended for us to not just be hearers of the truth, but to be doers of the truth, that, they, that we act on this truth, whether this is in our home, whether this is in our workplace, whether this is in our schools, what, wherever this is. But I want to challenge you to ask these three questions. I think they're helpful and they're designed to challenge each one of us. And I am also asking these questions in my own life. What is God asking me to join him in. Last week, we talked about uh, Blackaby and his Experiencing God book that he says, he says, find where God is at work and then join him. It's really straightforward, right? So in your own life, where are you seeing God at work? Is there something at your workplace that's really surprising? Is there a coworker? Is there a fellow classmate? Is there a teacher? Is there somebody where you just stand back and you say, I see God is at work? Now, here at Hope, one of the things that we accept, what gets me super excited about uh, being a part of what's happening here at Hope is that just accept that, that we're, our work here in this community is not accomplished, right? The mission's not been accomplished. The, the mandate that we originally were part of when the church was planted was to reach this community with the gospel. And we still have a mission to do there. And there's a component of that, that I'm so honored to have a small part in being, seeing what God's doing, but we still have a lot of work to be done. Leads to the second question. Are, there a, are you opposing a God-inspired change in any area of your life right now? Personal, practical, career? What, is there any change that you're standing up against and you're saying, not today, next week, maybe never? And, and just to remind you from the passage that we studied today, that Nehemiah is implying that there's people who are going to miss out on being a part of the change, and they're going to miss out on the blessing of being a part of the change. So has the Holy Spirit prompted you in such a way to say, I need to change this. I need to pursue this person. I need to be a part of what, what God's doing here. The third question is, is there an invitation that you need to give? 
I'm guessing as we've gone through this, I hope that you've been with us through this series that, that there's been a name, there's been a face, there's a coworker, a friend, a, a person in your life that you really are saying, I need to pursue this person. I don't know how to translate this. I have I've had a number of you come up to me and you have said to me in different contexts, You've said, hey, Sean, my, my neighbor, I just know I need to reach out to my neighbor, which it's a dangerous thing to say to me because I'm probably going to ask you, did you do it, right? Like, like you said that God's asked you to do this, and so you better do it, right? It's, it's what we do. We, we don't just have promptings from the Holy Spirit in our life. We don't have God knock at the door and say, hey, I would love for you to do it. I think we have that all the time. The question is, are you choosing to follow through with that process. And if you do, I'm guessing that you're going to find yourself like Nehemiah at some stage in the game. I think he's overwhelmed at some point saying, the good hand of God has been doing all this stuff. I don't take any credit for it for myself, but I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to be a part of the work that God's doing on his behalf and I think that's what it means for us to be people who understand what it means to join us. We join him and we invite others to join us in the process. And what happens in, as a result of that is people's lives are changed. Ultimately, back to the song that we sang before this message, that they could say they're no longer a slave. They've been set free. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you. We ask that you would search our hearts that you would know us. Lord, I pray for more promptings. I pray for more clarity. I pray for more names, whether it's family members that we have kind of pre-screened and said, oh, not them. They'll never accept the gospel or whether it's individuals in our lives that have been a source of pain or discouragement for us, but that we know that you're desiring to push us out of our comfort zone. Lord, would you allow us to be people who kind of have a reckless obedience to you? Would you never allow us to be people who believe that the mission is accomplished, that we get to retire from your work, Lord, that, that somehow that's someone else's responsibility? I think those are the, the lies of the deceiver. Um, Lord, would you remind us of the tremendous privilege that it means for us to be a part of what you're doing. And in this case, in the history of Israel, as you are restoring your temple, as you're restoring your people, as you're a covenant-keeping God, Lord, that you are offering a portion of your work to be able to be experienced through people who are willing to get their hands dirty a little bit, to, to seek and to save that which was lost, to to pursue, and in this case, to be a small part of the rebuilding of a wall, one that would ultimately leave those in the community around, not saying how clever is Nehemiah, his name would be forgotten, not saying how clever are the people who rebuilt this wall, but instead, Lord, what we know that they say, they, they say um, that they gave glory to the God of the universe that was ultimately the one who rebuilt his wall. We love you. We consider it a privilege to worship you. Uh, we consider it a privilege to be a small part of what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.